I realized this week that my interest in history usually originates with movies. You know, it's not like I'm that smart. Um, I just saw a movie and I began to wonder about it, and I wondered if it were true and how much of it were true. And uh, one of those movies was the 1962 film, The 300 Spartans, starring Richard Egan. Now, some of you didn't even know that ever existed. You know more about 300, the rise of, the, of an empire. But the 1962 film is a little more accurate. It's the 19, the 2014 film is a total fantasy. Um, but this uh, movie, The 300 Spartans, centers around the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C. In 480 B.C., King Xerxes of Persia invaded the Greek city-states. Remember, they weren't a nation. They were a bunch of city-states. But they were focusing on democracy in a... In a in a way, and uh, so Xerxes, uh, according to Herodotus, brought 2.6 million troops. Now, most modern historians don't believe that. Of course, they don't believe a lot of things, but most modern historians think maybe between 100,000 and 150,000 troops. By the way, that's a lot of troops. And uh, Thermopylae was a little pass in the mountains that the army needed to pass through, and the Spartans... There were 300 from the city of Sparta. They were elite troops. And the Greek city-states provided about 7,000 total soldiers. And um, the the 300 were highly trained. They were led uh, by King Leonidas, and he led the whole thing at Thermopylae. Um, When the Persian troops gathered intel about those Greeks in Thermopylae, They said, they're a bunch of foolish guys. They're sitting around combing their hair and doing calisthenics and doing cosmetic things. And they laughed, and they reported that back to Xerxes. But uh, there was a Greek physician and counselor there named Demeritus. And he explained to Xerxes, these weren't games they were playing This was a death ritual. These guys were going to Thermopylae only to die. The only plan was to die. Um, And then I have my second thought out of order. And I'm just, I'm going to uh, punt on how I did that. I'm going to borrow my, can you give me an outline? So here's the deal. The Spartans loved their city so much. They understood what the cost was, and they were willing to die for their city and higher purpose. Jesus came to this earth to die for higher purpose. He came to die for you. And... um, 
We're going to start with a test question, but we have several uh, passages. As Luke un unfolds the story, he asks this question, who is Jesus? And the crowds are curious about what Jesus, uh, what he was doing. And there are many different points uh, in Luke that catch this. And so the question is, who is Jesus? And that first passage is in Luke chapter 4. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are, what authority and power he gives, and orders to impure spirits that come out. Jesus was casting out demons. He was healing people of diseases. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and people were just curious, who is this guy? I think the next passage is Luke 7. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. People were paying attention. They were getting God is up to something. Uh, God is moving. This is not just an important person. God is at work here. This is really significant, but we don't have a clue what's, what's happening. And then uh, Rome, uh, Luke chapter 8, where is your faith? Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and um, this is after they've come across the Sea of Galilee, and he's calmed the storm. He asks, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Think about this. They've been with Jesus night and day. They've listened to him preach. They have watched him perform these miracles, and then they say, who is this guy? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And then last week, we looked at Luke chapter 9. But Herod said, remember when there's an aside in our passage last week, and it's sort of like we get into the mind of Herod just for a little bit. And Herod said, I beheaded John. Remember, uh, John was, or Herod was so embarrassed that John called him out about marrying his brother's wife and really taking her away and committing adultery with her. And... Um, Herod is embarrassed, and Herodotus, his wife, is uh, so angry, she orders Herod to, to uh, put John in prison, and then eventually she talks John in, or Herod into killing John and having his head cut off. And so Herod says, I beheaded John. Who then is this? I hear such great things about. And Herod was trying to see him, not because he really wanted to know the answer, he just wanted Jesus to sort of like do magic for him too. And um, so uh, we come to our first point, and it is uh, the test, the test question. And so Jesus has been training his disciples. He's called them to follow him. He's been living out the life before him. Remember, he came to proclaim the good news. It's exactly what he's been doing. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, he, he comes, and we have a passage, I think it's in Matthew, um, and this is really the context of this question. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Now, this has been the talk in the crowds all along. People are trying, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And so Jesus has been training his disciples and now he, this is the first time he asks. And so he says, uh, who do the people say that I am? Uh, this is around Caesarea Philippi. Luke doesn't tell us this, but Matthew does. And so let's see it on the map. There's your one map for the day. So think in terms of he had been at Bethsaida. 
That's where we saw him last time. That's where he fed the 5,000. Capernaum was the headquarters, and Jesus has gone up to Caesarea Philippi. Um, Herod the Great made the city Caesarea, and it's on the Mediterranean side of Israel. And so Herod Philip, uh, a son, built this city and named it um, Caesarea after Caesar and Philippi after himself. So everybody would know it's Philip's Caesarea and not his dad's. But that's where Jesus is headed, and that's where he is uh, when these events happen. Um, so in verse 18, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. That was a popular concept. Uh, John had been out there preparing the way for Jesus. People recognized that he, he preaches with power. John wasn't necessarily healing people, but he was preaching with power, and people were humbled. Uh, they saw him as a great servant and messenger of God, and many came forward to be baptized, to have their hearts ready for John's message, which was the kingdom of God is at hand, and the king is soon, soon going to be present. The king is Messiah. And uh, so some people thought, this, this is John back to life. You know, Herod killed him, but God is going to get back at Herod, and this must be John the Baptist. Others said Elijah. Elijah was a, a ninth century Old Testament prophet of God, and he had a powerful ministry in a time when... Uh, the number of true believers was fairly small compared to the whole nation. And um, the Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, written around 350 AD or 350 BC, so four or five hundred years after Elijah's life, that Elijah would come again. And so people are looking for Elijah. And they say, maybe it's Elijah. And then others said another prophet. Uh, Matthew tells us that some people thought Jeremiah was going to come back, and there's no reference to that, but that was the word on the street. That was the uh, kind of the talk. Um, so it's just taking me a minute without my notes since I'm so tied to my notes. Uh, but then Jesus comes to this real significant question, and um, he says, what about you? Verse 20, who do you say that I am? What about you? So you've, you've had a chance to watch my life. You've seen the works of God. You know what people think. What do you think? That's a really important question. It's an important question today. What do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? It's an important question for our entire world. Um, so let's go down to B. Next slide. Next slide, C. The discipleship breakthrough. That's in verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter nails it. This is the best thing he ever did in his life right here. To, to this point. And um, Matthew tells us a little bit more, and let's look at that Matthew passage, uh, Matthew 16. 
Jesus replied, so Luke doesn't tell us all of this. This is what Jesus says back to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah. This is Peter. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not uh, overcome it. Jesus is really overjoyed with Peter's answer. This is a major breakthrough in the discipling process. Jesus has invited his disciples to follow, and so they've, they've been doing it day after day after day after day, and he's not been like dumping stuff on them that they can't handle, but then Peter speaks for the whole group. He gets it. You are the Christ. Now, sometimes people get, well, so well, that's not a big deal. Well, the Christ is the anointed one. The Christ is the promised one, the holy one of Israel, the one that God has been moving all of history to bring a fulfillment through him. Um, the Christ, and the, the Old Testament word was Mashiach, and it means Messiah. That was a term that was uh, an Old Testament concept. It's harder for us. We think of Jesus Christ, some people think Christ is like his last name. It's his title. He is the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And Peter gets it. Now, I don't think he gets all of it, but he, he's getting, there's so many Old Testament passages that are pointing to this one, and he is the one. Peter gets that. And this is an exciting moment, and there's major breakthrough in this whole process. And Jesus is happy about it. Uh, there's a warning in verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. What? This is good news. Jesus is the Messiah. Now Jesus doesn't want his disciples to tell anyone. How can that make sense? Well, there is a timing issue. Don't forget that Jesus is full of wisdom, and he's a very wise man, and he has a plan that he is leading through. And... Um, Jesus understood his environment. When you think about the Old Testament, there are a lot of passages that speak of God sending one who would be a great deliverer. We think Savior. He was a Savior deliverer. God would send somebody that would defeat God's enemies. God was going to send somebody that was going to judge the earth. God was going to send somebody who would rule with an iron scepter. This is exciting because Rome is ruling the world of Jesus' day, and Rome is taxing this nation Israel heavily, and there are so many people in Israel who would just love for some leader to come along and say, I'm going to overthrow the Romans. And people would have risen up. And there were times in Jesus' ministry where people came to sort of take him and make him king. They wanted him to throw off the burden that Rome brought to them. Uh, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone because Jesus understood. This is sort of a one track. You know how, see, the people, there was a lot of people who read the Old Testament, and they saw what they liked. They liked a deliverer, savior who would rule the world. That is exciting. They didn't pay attention to passages that talked about someone who would suffer. Isaiah 53 got totally ignored. 
You know, some, that's the way some people read the Bible, isn't it? They look at things they really like, and they avoid things they don't like. They look at things that they like about Jesus, and they don't pay attention to things that they don't like about Jesus or what he said. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So what uh, do people think about Jesus to today? You know, some would say he's a great religious leader. Um, he was a great example of humble sacrifice. You know, look to Jesus if you need an example. Uh, he was uh, highly deluded. Some people think that. He's just a crazy guy. Um, he was an important figure on the religious landscape. When you look at all of history, Jesus would be one of those important religious leaders. Some would say he was a good moral teacher. And then there are Christians who have a high view of the Bible and would say he is the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do you think about Jesus? Uh, you know, this is just a good time for an assessment. There's a lot of assumptions, like we think about what everybody in this room thinks, and, and we'll probably find almost for every person here, there's a different view of who Jesus is. And my goal is for us to have as an accurate picture of who Jesus is as possible as revealed in the scriptures, and I'm not going to cover all that today, but that's my goal. Um, what do you think about Jesus? What are you learning about Jesus? Who is uh, he to you? Uh, what do you think about this uh, quote? Uh, this is uh, Jeremy Bowen, the presenter of a new British broadcasting corporation documentary on Jesus stated, this is the pursuit of this historical Jesus. This is on BBC the important thing is not what he was or he wasn't. The important thing is not what he was or what he was not. The important things is what people believe him to have been. A massive worldwide religion, religion numbering more than 2 billion people following his memory. That's pretty remarkable. 2,000 years ago. Pretty remarkable. Whatever you think, it's just what people believe. It's just remarkable. And uh, who Jesus is makes all the difference in the world. The Apostle Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 2 lets us see a climactic event in history that is yet to come. Look at this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. God has already given him all authority and on heaven and on earth to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Jesus is Lord he's master all of history is moving to this event you and I are going to be there some of us it's going to be a glorious day 
Some of us may find this very difficult. Will we bend the knee joyfully? I, just, I, I imagine I'm just going to melt. Or will we have to have somebody bend our knee? Um, this is Jesus, the creator God, the judge of the living and the dead. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is God in the flesh. He is Savior and Redeemer. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The real issue is, and this is what Jesus was asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's a personal issue. That's what he was asking Peter. It doesn't make any difference what the crowds think. Peter, what about you? His disciples, what about you? What do you think? What what are you going to do with your life as it relates to my life? Daryl Bach, a classmate of mine way back in the day, wrote this in 1996. He said, There is no greater tragedy or error of judgment in life than to underestimate him, Jesus. To underestimate. Is it possible that you underestimate who Jesus is? Is he just somebody who saved you from sin so that you could have a nice life? Is he really Lord? That means master. That means somebody in charge. Verses 22 through 27, we come to the way of sacrifice. And uh, let's read this uh, in verse 22. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Then he said to, this, said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and on the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So this is the way of sacrifice. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A lot of people in this room know that verse by heart. John 14, 6. Jesus is the way. He's the way we have a relationship with God. Verse 22 speaks of Jesus' sacrifice. And this, here he makes a prediction. It is the very first prediction of his death. Think about this. The disciples don't see this coming. It's in the Old Testament, but they don't see it coming. They know that Jesus, and so do the crowds, that Jesus is going to be a great king, a ruler, somehow. But they don't see this one coming. And this is new to them. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He would be arrested, he would be put on trial, he would be abused and beaten, and he would be uh, scourged with a scourge. 
And then he would be rejected by the elders of the nation Israel, the chief priests of the nation Israel. And that's a great prediction because there was only supposed to be one chief priest. But in Jesus' day, there were two, which is kind of a problem. And um, he's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, basically meaning Pharisees. And what he's referring to here, these are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the people who make up the ruling council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. That's what he's referring to. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be rejected by them. I am, here I am, the anointed one. You're right, Peter. And I'm going to be rejected by the most important people in Jerusalem. And then he says, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Whenever Jesus mentions his death, resurrection always follows. That was always the plan. Always the plan for death, always the plan for resurrection. He would be nailed to the cross until dead. He would rise from the dead on the third day. Third day. He would die on Friday, raised on Sunday. It was always the plan. But people didn't see it coming. They focused on those passages of deliverance and glory, and they saw Jesus as a failure. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. They didn't pay attention to Isaiah 53. And they just focused on what they liked, and they left out what they didn't think was important. Jesus gives the prediction here of the gospel as we know it. Um, the role of the Messiah, Jesus wants to make very clear to his followers here. The role of the Messiah is he has come to this earth to die. It's a way bigger deal than those Spartans who went to Thermopylae. He came to die. He came to pay a sacrifice for sin, our sin. He came to be a substitute for sin. He came to pay a ransom with his life. It would provide redemption. Um, this is a prediction of the gospel. Then in verse 23, he's going to totally surprise his disciples. The disciples sacrifice. The Messiah is going to sacrifice big time. Now we come to the disciples' sacrifice. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. They didn't see this one coming. First, they're going to have a really hard time. It's, they're really going to be slow to figure out that Jesus is going to die, and that was part of the plan. It just seems like... a the wrong thing. Jesus, you don't need to die here. Right up to the last. And they think they're totally defeated when he dies. They don't get it. And now he calls them to sacrifice themselves. He changes the discipleship expectations as to what it means to follow him. He's saying, do you want to be my disciples? If you want to be my disciple, here's what you do. Do you want to be my disciple? Well, the answer is sure. And Jesus says a disciple must deny himself or herself. 
a disciple must take up his cross daily. First mention of the cross. And you know that the cross was the popular way of Roman execution in the first century. And criminals who were uh, sentenced to death were required to take their crossbar and with a group of soldiers, they would march through the city and it was a public affair because this was kind of like a deterrent to crime where you uh, carry your crossbar. They didn't carry the whole cross, they just carried the crossbar and they had to go through the city and you know people could laugh at them or make fun of, make fun of them. This was the Roman way. And uh, Jesus brings this up Disciples were probably familiar with this whole concept of seeing someone carry the cross, but what in the world does it have to do with us, Jesus? Um, the cross would be literal for Jesus. They're going to see this. He's going to carry his crossbar through Jerusalem, and he's going to be totally humiliated by this. Some of the disciples, Peter for sure, as we understand it, he too would carry his cross, and be nailed to a cross. And as we understand, Peter was nailed upside down. But primarily, this was meant to be metaphorical for his disciples, not literal. And this applies to all disciples of all time to take up their cross, to take up a life of sacrifice to follow this one to be his disciple, to take up. I have come to die, to take up that attitude. I, am, I, I will die to myself for the sake of living for him. This is a commitment to follow Christ. It is a commitment to live sacrificially for them. This is a commitment to put his values and his priorities first, his kingdom first. My kingdom second. Now, the great thing is, you really find that what Jesus wants is your very best. And he's way wiser than you and me. So if I put my kingdom under his kingdom, things can work pretty well. They can. And he gets to be Lord. But if I start developing my own little ahead of his, my comforts, my needs my wants, and life can get out of hand, a little crazy, and there's a price to pay. Jesus talks about discipleship values in verses 24 and 25. He says, for, for, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And here's the principle. If you want to make your life about you, you're going to lose it. It's not going to count. You won't make any difference. If you want to give your life to him, you win. Jesus is picturing here. This is what a lot of us don't get. I, I hope this is, maybe it's not new. It's going to be new for some of you. This is conversion. This is what conversion was all about from the beginning. We're the ones who've changed it. We've sort of made it like, well, I understand. I'm supposed to place my faith in Christ, and I get my sins forgiven, and then I get eternal life. I get to go to heaven. And now I'm in the family of God, and I'm a child of God, and that's all good. It's all good. But there's a lifestyle of following. 
And this is conversion. I was once going in this direction, and now I'm going to go in this direction. This is the change, change in values. And it's not like, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I have option A, option B, or option C. You know, option A is kind of try to be a good person, try to be nice, throw a few bucks in the offering. I'm a good Christian, you know. Oh, Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross every day. Not just on Sunday, not just every once in a while, every day, this is the way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is his way. It's not the way of salvation. It's the way of discipleship. It's the way of following him. This is how we do it. It's not how we enter it. By the way, I believe in eternal security. If somebody is truly born again, Jesus is going to see them all the way through. But our lives need to show that we belong to him. And Jesus has given these instructions. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? There is no good in it. You can have all the gold at Fort Knox. You could own Microsoft. You could have a vacation home in every continent or every country. You could have all the skills of Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods in their prime. You could have all the talent of Taylor Swift or the mind of Albert Einstein. You could have it all, and you could add to it as much as you want. And Jesus said, it is worthless if you don't get this about discipleship. The Apostle Paul uh, described this kind of discipleship another way. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, this is to the church at Rome, to believers, in view of God's mercy, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, all that God has done for us, in view of God's mercy, he didn't judge us, he offered salvation and forgiveness, then in view of that, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Deny yourself. Put his priorities first. Offer your body. I think this is great for the day we live in. Offer your body parts. Your, but offer, it's a total offering to God. Who you are. What you have. Your, your mind. Your heart. All that you are. Offer yourselves to God. As a living sacrifice. Daily thing. Sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. When you do that, you are, you are set apart for God. You are viewed as holy in his sight, just as holy as the Bible. And you are pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is an act of worship. It's not just singing a few songs. It's not just saying, praise God, those are good. It's not just saying, thank you, Lord, that's good. It's a part of worship, but offering your bodies is a very important part. Offering all that you are is a very essential part of our discipleship. And then the next slide, do not conform to the pattern of this world. You can have it all. You can have the whole world, but it's, it's not going to be worth anything. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, just good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, the amazing thing is God didn't say we can't enjoy this life. He didn't say we can't enjoy the world. It's just not supposed to be the most important. It's not supposed to be ahead of any of his priorities and just put our lives under his. Why did we, it amazes me when I think about what it means to be born in this country and to live in this time and have all the stuff we do. And if you look at other countries, you, you know there are so many countries that have so much less. And yet here we are, and we also can say we're Christians who are saved. At least probably most of us would want to say that in this room. Verse 26, the final exam. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them uh, when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Many people in the crowds in Jesus' day, those people who come up to listen and to watch, they liked Jesus. They were impressed by him. They thought he was cool. But you know what? They were afraid sometimes to go public. They were afraid to, be, to follow Christ. They were afraid of what people would think. They were afraid of the religious leaders all through the nation, the rabbis, the Pharisees, all those people. They were afraid, and they just sort of kept it to themselves. And Jesus gives a warning to that crowd and to people of all generations. If you were embarrassed by Jesus, this is his coming at the end of the age, this is the second coming of Christ. And there's many passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, this. It's a time of judgment on earth. And there's going to be a time when people uh, are going to be embarrassed by Jesus. Uh, verse 27, there's a kingdom snapshot. Jesus said, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. There's a lot of interpretations on what this means. I think the easiest one and the best one is some of you are standing here. He's talking to the 12. Some of you who are here are going to see the kingdom of God. And you're not going to die before this happens. Now, there's a lot of things that are going to happen. You know, seeing Jesus die on the cross and see him rise from the dead, that's going to be seeing the kingdom of God appear. Uh, seeing his resurrection, seeing his ascension, that's part of the kingdom of God. Those apostles are going to be gathered in Jerusalem, and uh, they're going to see the Holy Spirit come, and uh, this huge change in the church gets started, and that's the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. And yet, I think there's something really specific here, and that's what we're going to talk about next week, so you have to come back next week to hear about it. It's that time when He's going to separate out Peter, James, and John for a special event when they get to see Jesus appear in his glory just for an instant. And it's just continuing to confirm who Jesus is. Now, these guys are going to be willing to die for Jesus no matter what, except uh, for uh, Judas, and he's going to die for another reason. So um, Jesus asked this great question. Luke brings it out. Who is Jesus? Then there's a great confession. You are the Christ. And then there's a great sacrifice about the Son of Man. 
And then there's this great commitment that Jesus asked for, deny yourself and put Jesus' values and goals ahead of my own. And so um, here's the lesson. I must deny myself and choose to live sacrificially for Christ every day. That's it. That's all you have to know. If you got that, you got the whole thing. Now, we just need to do it. For Jesus, this is what conversion looks like. This is a picture of repentance, a changed life. I was once walking here. This was my life. This was my old nature. I have been given a new nature, a new capacity to serve God. And this is the walk I take. And it means that I have to de deny selfish things. It means Jesus comes before other things. And by the way, he has a very best plan for my family, for my marriage, for my kids. He has a very best plan for my daily life. That's all he's asking for, is to follow him. Um, his priorities over my priorities. Jesus is Lord. He's master. Do you want that? Not just to say, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe, but he is my Lord. We mentioned earlier in the service that coming up, August 5th is a baptism, and that's a believer's baptism, and that's an opportunity for people who are followers of Christ to take a step of obedience and to be baptized. And so I understand the Bible, baptism is something that an individual chooses, somebody who's a follower of Christ. It's not something that other people choose for you. I don't think parents choose baptism for their kids. I think individuals who are followers of Christ it could be a young age. It could be older than me, which is hard to believe. But individuals choose. It's a step of obedience. It's a, it honors Christ. If you are thinking about it, I just encourage you to, uh, to talk to me. If you have questions and you don't know, I'd love to talk with you. So uh, consider that. Let's all stand together and pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for um, the Gospel of Luke and this snapshot into Jesus' life and words of discipleship from him, not only the way of salvation, but the way of discipleship. If Jesus is Lord, he is our leader, and we want to follow the leader God, it's my prayer as we stand before you right now that you would show us what are some things that we might need to deal with to deny ourselves and put Jesus before things that maybe Jesus has prompted us in. Lifestyle choices may relate to the use of our money, how we treat our wives, how we treat other family members, how we treat people at work, our attitudes. Lord, show us how we can humbly follow you. May your Holy Spirit have the freedom to work in our lives.
May we desire to present all that we are, all that we have to you so that you would be honored. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.